Okay, three parts. First, a little history lesson. Second, to look at Jesus and his mission. Third, to look at how his mission is meant to become personal. So first, the history lesson. Okay, so, so many of us know this. The Bible is broken up into two parts, right? There's the Old Testament, which is most of the Bible, and then the, the New Testament. Sorry, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, God uh, interacts with various people in various ways. And in those interactions, he makes a series of promises with some people that are, are they're like more than promises. They're like a solemn oath. We call it a covenant. And these, these people that he makes these promises with, they're all like, they're all the main players that you know, right? So Noah, uh, Moses, Abraham, David, these kinds of people. He makes these promises because he sees in them a deep faith. That is, that is a deep trust in who he is. And it's that trust that, that leads them to love him and to want to please him. So he makes these promises where he says to them, you're my, you're my people and I, I want to give myself to you. I, I want, you are mine and I am yours. And it's this, this really beautiful promise where the Lord promises that he's going to be faithful to his people and that his people are, are meant to be faithful to him. So one of those covenants that he makes is with King David, who, who lives, give or take, around the year 1000 BC. So a thousand years before Jesus. And David, he sees, God looks at David and he sees in David what he says, a man after my own heart. That is, he looks at David's heart because God can see beneath the surface of people. And he sees David, uh, that in David, his heart is always set on trying to please God. Of course, we know the story. We know that David is, is actually, he commits some really serious sins, some really problematic sins. But even when he does sin, he immediately repents of his sin. Uh, and so like there's this, this beautiful thing of just like David, like living his life, wanting always to follow God's commandments. Sure. But, but more than that, you know, like he's in love with God and he wants to please God in everything that he does. And so God makes this promise to him. He says, David, you're the king. You're, you're the king of my people, my kingdom, Israel, right? Kingdom, the, Israel is God's chosen people. It's the land, the promised land that he promised to Abraham, actually, that he would give to his people. And David is the king of this kingdom, of this land. And so God says to David, David, because I see your faith, because I see your love for me, that you're a man after my own heart, I promise you, I give myself to you in such a way that you will always have a descendant on the throne. We call it the Davidic dynasty. That this, this dynasty, right? That, that, and we know, how, we know how, how monarchies work, right? There's the king, and then the king's firstborn son uh, takes the next, uh, when the king dies, he becomes king, and then, you know, all the way down the line. So this is, this is a beautiful promise. And when David is the king, all of the people of Israel are united as one, right? So the, the land itself is broken up into 12 tribes. We would call them states, but broken up into 12 tribes, which are named after the, the sons of Jacob, uh, whose name is changed to Israel, right? If I didn't mention Jacob before, he's, he's in the, the covenants as well. Anyway, so, so the whole kingdom of Israel is, is united under this king, David, whose heart is set on God and on God alone. It's, it's, it's an incredible thing. This is the high point of God's chosen people in the Old Testament. After David dies, his son Solomon becomes the king. God comes to Solomon and he says, I want to give you a gift. Ask for whatever you want. Whatever you ask, I'm ready to give it to you. Solomon asks for the gift of wisdom, that he can know what is good and what is evil in God's eyes. 
which is in itself amazing, right? Because he could have asked for power, he could have asked for wealth, he could have asked for anything that he wanted, great fame, but instead he chooses to ask for wisdom, this, this ability to, to discern what is good and what is evil in God's eyes, and, and God gives it to him. And it's like, so his kingship starts out so amazing and so beautiful in line with David, his father. The problem is that eventually what happens, Solomon, his heart turns away from the Lord because he becomes distracted with worldly things, including his wives. He has, he has like something like 300 wives and 700 concubines, right? And all of these, these people, turn, these women turn his heart away because they come from different countries that worship false gods. And so Solomon begins to turn away from the Lord. He begins to act wickedly, concerned with worldly affairs, with power and wealth and, and fame. Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam takes the throne. Rehoboam is a wicked king, right? So you can see this, how this is playing out already, right? David, who's a man after God's own heart, the kingdom is united in him because, because they have a, a holy, a godly king. Within two generations, right? David's grandson is a wicked king. And because he's a wicked king, he rebels against God's ways and does not follow God's commandments. And what's more, being an ungodly king, a wicked king, the people follow his lead, and so at this time in Israel, very few people are following God's ways, keeping his commandments, trying to live godly and upright lives. And what happens actually is they begin to bicker against each other and the kingdom of Israel goes through something like a civil war where 10 of the kings, the 10 tribes that are, they're, they're kind of the northern part of the tribes, they break off from the two southern tribes the two southern tribes, they, they're not really following God's ways, but they at least have an understanding that they should follow God's ways. And so they want to do that. Whereas the 10 northern tribes, they just don't care. And so they break off. And, and they're still, still connected as a land, right? And this is part of the problem. But anyway, then there's the two tribes or the two um, parts of the one kingdom of Israel that's now split. And it's, it's, really, it's really sad, right? Because this is God's people, his chosen people, the people that he loves, and here his family is fighting and bickering to the point that they've caused serious separation from each other. But then it gets worse, actually. Because the people are not following God's ways, because they're rebellious and stubborn and unwilling to hear the challenges of the Lord to repent of their sins, God withdraws his protection and he allows people from another country to come into the northern kingdom to invade and conquer. These are the people called the Assyrians. So the Assyrians come in and they conquer the northern kingdom, and they take them off into exile. It's called the Assyrian exile. It's a really tragic and sad thing, again, because why? This is God's chosen people living in the land that he promised to give them, the land which was said to be flowing with milk and honey, this rich and luscious land. And living there, it meant that they were up on this pedestal because they were God's people, people he called his firstborn son. Right? People that he loved and cared for, that he made these covenants, these promises with, people that he loved so dearly. And now, what happens? They're brought off into exile. They're on this pedestal, and they have this terrible and, and drastic fall from grace. So now, among these ten tribes, the first two tribes to fall would be the northern, northernmost tribes, which are called Zebulun and Naphtali which hopefully those two names sound familiar because we heard them in our readings three times. 
we heard this, that, that Zebulun and Naphtali, what does it say in Isaiah? First, the Lord degraded the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are the first tribes to have God's presence and God's grace withdrawn from them. They're the first ones to be conquered. So you got to think about this. They're the first ones really to experience the shame of their sinfulness, of their rebelliousness. The first ones. So that means at the time of Jesus, the, fir- the, the tribes who had been without God's presence for the longest would have been these two tribes. And yet, what does the Lord say in, in, our, in our reading from Isaiah, right? So first the Lord degraded them. But in the end, he has glorified the seaward road, the land west of the Jordan, the district of the Gentiles. And then he goes on to talk about this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Upon those who dwelt in the land of gloom, a light has shone. There's this incredible promise from the Lord. It's like he's saying, yes, Yes, I see that you're the first ones to fall. I see that you're the first ones to experience the shame of your sinfulness. And what I'm saying to you is that for you who walk in this gloomy state, a light is going to shine upon you. I'm going to restore you and I'm going to care for you. So then we fast forward and what happens when Jesus comes? So this is at the beginning of the gospel of Matthew. In other words, Jesus is beginning his his ministry. We talked last week about how we know that Jesus isn't just another man. He's not even an extraordinary man, but he's God himself who has come to dwell among us, right? So, So this is God himself. So wherever he goes, he is bringing God's presence and God's power. So now Jesus is beginning his public ministry at the age of 30. And where's the first place that he goes to? He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali so that he could fulfill the very prophecy that we heard in our first reading. You see how incredible this is, right? Like you got to let yourself be caught up in this, this story of like, God comes down to take on our human flesh and the first place he chooses to go, that is to say the first place that he chooses to bring his salvific power and presence, the presence of God himself, is he chooses to go to the very people who have been without his presence for the longest. This is his mission, this is who he is, and this is his mission, is that he's, he says, I see you from the heavens, and I'm coming down, and I'm going to come to you, because I want to bring you salvation. You've been sitting in gloom and darkness and shame for the longest, and so I am eager to come to you the first. It's, it's, it's this incredible thing, so that, so that what happens, right? The people... The people who are up on their pedestal and they have their hard fall from grace. Jesus comes to them to lift them back up. But now this is like this, this is where it gets even better, right? Because he's not just coming to lift them back up to where it was before, right? He's coming, yes, to restore the kingdom of Israel. Absolutely. But more than anything, he's coming to lift them up even higher because what does he say? From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see this, the people that were on their pedestal, they had their hard fall from grace. Jesus comes to lift them up, but not to lift them up so that they could go back to the way things were before because the way things were before is they were a rebellious and stubborn people who were destined to fall from grace. Jesus comes to lift them up and to lift them beyond where they were before all the way up into the kingdom of heaven where there is no sin, there is no rebelliousness, there is no shame and darkness, but it is only light. This is what Jesus has come to do. This is the good news, brothers and sisters. And so what Jesus is saying, repent. He's saying, get rid of your old way of thinking. 
Get rid of thinking how you just wish it was the way that it was before. I'm coming to give you a new kind of life, a kind of life that you actually couldn't have imagined before. So you need to try to do your best to get your mind in that mindset. Prepare yourself to receive not just like the old kingdom, but prepare yourself to receive the new kingdom that is to come. This is his mission. But, but what happens next is, is a striking thing because, because this is something that I think we as Catholic Christians don't always think about super well, right? We're, we're, we're used to talking about how, how Jesus, he has a church and he loves his church. We're talking about Jesus having like a salvation, a message of salvation that is on a corporate level for an entire community. But then what happens? Jesus, he goes, yes, and he talks about how this entire community needs to prepare themselves. They need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then what happens? He walks and he finds individual people and he speaks to individual people, right? As he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother, Andrew. And he says to them, come after me and I will make you fishers of men. You see how the, the mission of Jesus becomes personal. So that Jesus, he doesn't just talk to entire crowds, but instead he comes up to individual people and he looks them in the eye so that they can see his color, like the color of his eyes, and they can see his pupils, and he can see the color of their eyes and the pupil of their eyes. And he says to them, face to face, he says, you, follow me. I didn't just come to restore the kingdom of Israel. I came to restore individual people. This is something that's so important for us. And that actually, I think our Protestant brothers and sisters sometimes can do a better job of talking about Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. It's absolutely true that Jesus came to save the community, that he came to save the world. But more than that, Jesus came to save you individually. He came to walk up to you and look you in the eyes so that you can see the color of his eyeballs, so you can look into his pupils and hear him as he speaks directly to you. You, follow me. I've come to restore, yes, all of these people, but more than that, I've come to restore you, to save you, to bring you out of your pit of darkness. I've come to save you, to lift you beyond the status quo. And so you repent for the kingdom of heaven at hand. Repent and prepare yourself to receive a kind of life that you couldn't possibly imagine. This is so incredibly important for us, brothers and sisters, because if you haven't encountered Jesus in this way, you're missing something that is huge. If you haven't encountered Jesus in a personal way, then you haven't encountered Jesus in his fullness. And I know that maybe some of us have encountered him in that way. Some of you are tracking with me. You're saying, yeah, Father, I know what that's like. Like I was part of a member, I was, I was a member of the community, but then Jesus came to me individually and he came to me and he said, follow me. And I did. Praise the Lord. But I also know there are, there are many of us maybe in this church that have not encountered Jesus in this way. There are many of us in the church that maybe Jesus has tried to encounter in this way, but we've been stubborn. We've been hard of heart, unwilling to repent, unwilling to get beyond thinking about how we just wish it could stay as it is. When in fact, Jesus wants to give us a kind of life that is unmatched by anything this world can offer. And for you, if that's you, 
the message is simple. Repent. Set aside your old way of thinking and understand that the kind of life that Jesus wants you to have is the kind of life that leads to the same response that Peter and Andrew, James and John had. When Jesus walked up to them and looked them in the eyes and spoke to them face to face, what does it say? At once they left their nets. Immediately they left their boat and their father behind and followed Jesus. It's the kind of thing that leads a person to have a resolve that says, I don't care what I have to get rid of. I don't care what I have to leave behind because God himself has come down from heaven to save the world, yes, but he has come down from heaven to find me, to speak to me, to look into my eyes and to tell me that he sees me and he sees everything about my life. He sees me in the pit and he comes and he reaches down and he grabs my arm and he pulls me up and I just can't imagine not following after him. I can't imagine not responding to the call to discipleship. I can't imagine it because what he offers me, nobody else can offer. What he offers me is the kind of thing that I can't, I can't make it up on my own. And so I have to follow. And if you're at a place where you just can't get excited about this, that's a really great place of honesty. But that's also a really great place for you to stop everything you're doing and pray and say, Jesus, I don't think I get it. And I need your help because I want to get it. What the Bible promises me, what the church promises me is a life that I can't even wrap my mind around. And in fact, I don't even know if I believe that it exists. But Jesus, if it exists, I need you to give me that kind of faith. Jesus, if it exists, I need you to reveal your gaze upon me so that I can respond like that because I don't want to miss out on anything like that. I don't want to miss out on the divine life that you come to give me. And so Jesus, I don't know if I'm really ready. I don't even know if I'm willing. But Jesus, maybe, maybe I'm willing to let myself be open to the idea that you're real, to be open to the idea that you're calling me to this. Jesus, I may be open to the idea of following after you with my whole life. Come and get me, Jesus. Come and get me.